You always have to think where you come from. Never forget that. You are the human being who happens to be in charge for a couple of years to do this. The people on the front line, they make the money for the company. The salespeople in the field, the technicians, the great developers, and all of that. And the service people who take 100 calls or 200 calls a day from customers and handle complaints. These are the people who matter. And as long as you don't forget that, I think that's a requirement for being allowed to run a big company. That's Renee Oberman, chairman of Airbus and managing director of Warburg Pincus. Renee is one of Europe's business legends. When he was 23, he started his first business, ABC Telecom, while still in school. Two decades later, he rose to become CEO of Deutsche Telekom, the largest telecom provider in Europe. While there, he successfully led the company through an enterprise-wide digital transformation. Renee Oberman is a luminary in the European business world, and I'm honored to call him a mentor and friend. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode digital transformation. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Renee, really thrilled to be speaking today. Thanks for the time. So I recall we first met at CBIT in 2012, which is a massive tech conference, and you were on stage announcing Deutsche Telekom's cloud business, which was very innovative and risky at the time because a lot of people in Germany hadn't adopted the cloud. Would love to just start by you sharing your experience as CEO of Deutsche Telekom on embracing innovation and cloud. Well, you know, Telekom was in a difficult situation as an ex-monopoly company. When I became CEO, you know, it was losing a lot of customers. It was uh, in the midst of a technology transformation. Prices were coming down, et cetera, et cetera. But it had three divisions. One was the mobile division, one was the fixed-line traditional division, and one was T-Systems. So three divisions, about 200-some thousand, 220, 230,000 people, and massive restructurings. So on the one side, we had to restructure the traditional ex-monopoly business to become competitive again. And on the other side, we had to find areas to grow. And, you know, that was a big challenge. Fortunately, we had the wireless division and we had opportunities around, you know, the corporate and enterprise division because our corporate customers were looking for solution providers as opposed to just communication access providers. And so in our innovation efforts, we looked at what would be fantastic growth opportunities, and we identified that the world would go into cloud. And we probably were a bit ahead of our time because there was a lot of resentment against cloud migration. But, you know, since we had such a trusted relationship with a lot of corporate customers, we felt that we could also take them by the hand and lead them into the So it was part of an effort to lead in innovative trends and to make use of the fact that we had a strong established customer base on the corporate side. At the time, it seemed like many corporate leaders were resisting the cloud and not embracing innovation, particularly in Europe and in Germany, for a variety of reasons. What led you to be one of the first to adopt and take that risk? Well, it was clear that on the long run, a couple of trends were you know, dominating. One was mobility, and the other one was that it makes no sense that every company 
runs their own IT infrastructure, that eventually things would get into the cloud. We kind of were convinced that this would happen. So then you have a choice. You can either run behind or you can try and lead some of these developments. And, and we decided for the latter. And again, whilst we were restructuring a big part of the company, the legacy part of the company, we had to embrace new trends and innovation early in order to you know, create new perspectives. So we had no choice but to drive some of the innovative opportunities and you know, put resources behind that. And we did that successfully in mobile, as you, for instance, in the US can see with T-Mobile. Uh, we also did that in parts of all you know, corporate value-add services and also leading in some of the trends such as in cloud. Let's touch on that, on the mobile phase. So obviously you're one of the early adopters of Apple and worked with them to release the iPhone both in Germany and across your markets, including T-Mobile in the US. Can you tell me about what the decision was to bring it to market and some of the stories behind that original Apple deal for the iPhone? Like 15 years ago, 2005, 2006, around that time frame, there weren't any smartphones of today's uh, you know, nature. It was more like closed ecosystems. But at least some of us in the team already believed that we could do with IP, we could do more and more things with a smartphone and the smartphone would eventually converge into kind of a control center for a lot of your personal uh, services, information services and communication services, and also for music. So then when Apple started to approach potential customers and partners for introducing the device, we were immediately convinced, as we had done a lot of thinking about those new trends, we were convinced that this would be our opportunity to promote our brand, to be, again, you know, an innovation leader, not just an old ex-monopoly company. And we saw that as a big opportunity to partner with Apple, who we had highest regards for, to introduce the product exclusively in some of the European markets. We, if I recall it correctly, we were introducing it in six European markets in 2007 and 8, and then later on also in the UK. So we put a lot of effort in winning Apple's support. It wasn't easy because it was competitive. Others wanted to do the same thing. But yeah, we kind of could convince Apple we would be the best partners. A, we had the best network. We put a lot of effort into always best connected on the wireless side. And B, we had a distribution system which was fairly controlled and strong. And so these were, I guess, the key criteria also for Apple to pick us. And we invested into that partnership. And Steve Jobs came in 2007 to do the introduction of the Apple iPhone into the German market. And I will never forget that because, you know, the whole fan community wanted to be part of that introductory session in Berlin. It was a great moment. Can you tell me more about that moment? You know, bringing Steve Jobs to Germany there with his fans? I get, how to say, goose skin still because Steve was so charismatic. We had a reception prior to going on stage. People were queuing outside the room. They all wanted to kind of hear it from his mouth, you know, what, what he had in mind. And a lot of senior business leaders in Germany, they all wanted to be part of that event. It was so impressive. I mean, he was such a charismatic individual. And of course, you know, an icon in an innovation and a design and so on. So, yeah, it was very impressive. I will never forget that. I still, you know, cherish the pictures I have uh, on my iPhone. That's incredible. And I know many people are a fan of you and your career, including myself. One of the things that I have to say about you is your incredible humility and passion for innovation. Because when we were first at that CBIT 2012 moment, I went up to you, really thrilled to meet you and wanted a picture with you. And you said, wait, I'm going to take a picture of you because you're an innovator. And I respect that. I'll never forget that moment that someone so highly regarded and that runs such a large organization took the time to think and compliment innovation. 
And I know that you had a lot of early success in your career, starting as an intern at BMW and then becoming entrepreneurial in your own right. Can you tell us about that journey and what led you to be the CEO of Deutsche Telekom? Oh, uh, you know, after high school and military service, I actually wasn't quite sure what to do next. I was torn between studying medicine and going into business. So I did an intern at a small IT consultancy firm and learned a little bit about IT at the time. And then I heard about these education programs from BMW, Daimler, IBM, and some large companies who would offer an apprenticeship program in the company, very structured and good program, but at the same time, some evening courses at a local academy to deepen you know, the knowledge in business. And it was paid. And I needed, to be honest, I needed some money. So I decided for that program and, uh, rather than go to university. And quite frankly, I learned a great deal there. And when I studied you know, later on macroeconomics in my first and second semester, it was very easy because I had learned quite a bit already. So I started a business next to doing the university and that business grew very fast. It was in telecommunications already. And initially it was selling hardware and doing some technical service out of my study apartment. And I almost did a seven-digit revenue out of my study apartment. It was a small, small room and very improvised. So I bootstrapped it and then took it from there. The next step was to have a small office, but again, very improvised. You know, no venture capital at the time. I didn't even know what it was. So I really bootstrapped this whole thing and then it grew and grew. And I had a partner for a couple of years who brought in expertise and also money who left then after three years again. But from there, we took it to become one of the first mobile virtual network operators some five years, six years after founding it. And the company had to be brought to the next level. And we did that by bringing Hutchison Wampoa in as a majority shareholder and learned a great deal from these people in Asia. And also they had some other activities in Europe. Did that for about another six years until 1997, end of 97. And then the former CEO of Deutsche Telekom wanted to strengthen his mobile division, which he had started from scratch on the greenfield, basically, and not as part of the large corporate elephant. And he was trying to find some young rebels to build that business up because at the time it was the revolution, right? You know, fixed line was the predominant means of communications and wireless was attacking fixed line in a way. So he created, he was a very far-sighted person, very visionary person. He created his own competition by setting up the mobile business, T-Mobile as it is called today, T-Mobile in the US, T-Mobile in Europe. And Ron Zommer was his name, and he hired two rebels, Kai-Uwe, Rika, and myself, and charged us with building his mobile division up and competing effectively against Vodafone and others. And our mission was very simple. Just make sure you become market leaders as the market was growing so fast. And he wanted us to become market leaders. We did that within, I think it took us like some three years to overcome Vodafone and become the undisputed market leader in Germany and later on also in other markets. That eventually led the board of Deutsche Telekom, where mobile was only one division, which I was running. I led the board of, of Deutsche Telekom to appoint me to um, in charge me with running the entire group. That was 2006. And I was only 42 years at the time, sorry, 43, and fairly young to do that because the whole group was a massive restructuring case at the time. And whilst mobile was a growth story, the rest of the group was pretty much, you know, under pressure. And given the super intense competition 
given technology change from legacy technology, proprietary technology to IP, which would mean delayering basically from service to network and having all kinds of competitors come in, fast price erosion, etc. And here this legacy company with you know 160,000 or so people just in Germany, of course that had to be restructured and that was my mission from then onwards and it was an entirely different game than running a fast-growing division of the group. Do you see what I mean? I mean, all of a sudden I was confronted with something I'd never done before. So I must admit it was very tough. And for three years or so, I was always at the edge of what I could manage because we had to restructure more than 50,000 jobs. We had to close down like 100 locations and rebuild new modern ones and consolidate. It was such an inefficient organization. We had to redo and re-engineer all the business processes, create a new brand which was powerful and where people would rally behind. It was very, very intense. And eventually it worked and the company stopped the bleeding and became competitive again. And then after seven years of being a CEO, I kind of felt like, you know, the world goes too fast and there's too much innovation out there. Are too many companies like yours, Dan. And I was, I'm running here this big elephant. I just need a change. And I asked the board to accept that I would leave earlier than my second contract period. And the board did not like that idea, but they eventually accepted. And I had another year of transitioning to my great successor. And I left the company with a good feeling because it was more competitive and it was on a good course. And as you see today, it's still the strong company, the most successful telecommunications company in Europe. I mean, it's incredible. During your tenure, it was a Fortune 100 global entity, over 200,000 employees. What was it like going from student in the apartment with a bootstrap business to managing so many people and so many business lines that were critical for not just the country, but for the world? You always have to think where you come from. Never forget that, right? And never believe that all the pompastrous environment and the private jet and the drivers and the security and all of that, that's got nothing to do with you. You are the human being who happens to be in charge for a couple of years to do this. But, you know, everything around you is somewhat artificial. And you never forget where you come from. You never forget where the money is being made. And that the pyramid has to be upside down and not the other way around. The people on the front line, they make the money for the company. The salespeople in the field, the technicians, the great developers and all of that. And the service people who take 100 calls or 200 calls a day from customers and handle complaints. These are the people who matter. And as long as you don't forget that, I think that's a requirement for being allowed to run a big company. So never get carried away with power and never get carried away with big income or so. Just forget where you come from. And in a very people-intense organization, this is most important that you never forget who makes the money. Can you share more about your values and how that stems and grows your leadership? I mean, my value system is multifaceted and it's, I find it sometimes difficult to simplify that and reduce it to two or three key things. I want to try nonetheless. Personally, what I think matters most is remain a reliable individual. If you make commitments, that you honor those commitments, that you don't forget what you promised. And that, you know, often because there are other opportunities or things maybe even more profitable in that very moment, but you stick to your commitment and be a reliable partner to other companies, to your employees, to your customers, etc. The second thing is, as a leader, I think it is a must not to let the door open a single bit, a little bit even, 
for you know bad business practices or bad behavior or even incompliant behavior. Because an organization follows what you do and not necessarily follows what you say. So you need to live transparency and honesty and compliance yourself. Otherwise, you don't deserve to run the company. And it has become even more important over the last years because nothing what the company does remains you know, under the surface. So you have to assume everything you do is good so it can be published, which is not easy to follow always because you often get into difficult situations having to make difficult choices. And the third thing I said already, unless you always create room for innovation and you're always ready to disrupt yourself, success is extremely dangerous. If you run a successful company and you're not constantly paranoid to be ready to disrupt, say you have a great service, but all of a sudden there came IP messaging. We as an industry and we as a company failed to see WhatsApp coming and eat away our text messaging revenue at the time, right? Because, you know, our engineers, and we as leaders didn't see that it was high time to kind of kill the established business model and create something more customer-friendly, more user-friendly, and also more affordable. And when that happens, you pay the price. And so as an industry and as a company and as a leader, you constantly have to watch out for what can disrupt you and be ready to disrupt yourself. Even if it's difficult sometimes to convince the capital market, your shareholders, that the company goes through a transformation where the outcome is less clear. When you attack your own revenue streams with new products, which are probably less profitable per unit, that you can eventually make up for it because you get much higher market acceptance. That's always a journey of discovery and it's always coming with uncertainty and may last years. So it's very hard in established firms to drive a transformation and innovation process and disrupt yourself. But you've got to be ready for it. If you don't, somebody else will and you're dead. It's great advice and great value system. So on the disruption point, what advice would you give to an employee within a large organization who has an idea, who wants to innovate, what do they need to do in order to convince the CEO or their superiors in order to embrace that innovation? Well, I guess bring the point, bring it to the attention of management and you know, try and argue the case. But the first thing is an organization has to be open for that. So as long as there are direct channels to communicate and a CEO or a board allows people and encourages people to communicate directly, and bring up those ideas and rewards those ideas. So there must be kind of a almost an institutionalized system for people to be encouraged to bring up innovation ideas. And there needs to be an institution in the company, like a team or so, which regularly you know, looks at those things and brings them for judgment as to whether it's, you know, it's applicable, it's doable, and what kind of resources it will take. And the people get, get feedback. So not every idea of innovation can be done and implemented, but at least you need, as an employee, you need to get feedback that this has been looked at, has been evaluated, and there are good points and there are probably less, uh, less feasible points, but you get feedback. So an organization has to be open. And the glass ceilings for people not to be able to communicate with their leadership need to be eliminated. Now, and then to be pragmatic, as a CEO, you can't deal with 100 innovation proposals from within your organization per day. That just goes too far. So you need to establish kind of a little bit of team to help you do that. But unless you do that, people don't feel encouraged. You don't leverage the collective energy of an organization of innovation. See what I mean? Everybody has great ideas, usually, and encourage people to bring them up 
and give some feedback. Great. So it sounds like a key piece of advice you'd have for your CEO peers is to ensure that within their organizations, there's a framework of how to innovate and how to bring these ideas. When you were at DT, did they have existing systems or was that something you had to build? And what was the process of getting support from the board? Well, principally, there was the opportunity to write emails to your leadership team. That's clear. And I would not say that any of my predecessors would not have been open-minded at all. We just evolved it further and we established a direct channel called Direct Zoo in the intranet. And then later on, we also established a team to judge and to discuss innovation and bring things up to top management attention. But of course, not every single bit and piece which was coming inside the organization upwards could be handled directly by myself or by my board colleagues. But we established kind of a framework and a team to make those assessments and give people feedback and reward those things which eventually would be implemented. Could be new processes, could be frugal innovation, could be product innovation, could be small features, could be small features with a big effect, could be on cost management or eliminating you know, stupid processes or so. Innovation has many facets, and that also needs to be clear in the organization. Amazing. So you mentioned balancing this innovation and ability to disrupt yourself but then also living by the highest standard of ethical compliance. One concept that we really see and talk about on Decoding Digital is digital citizenship and the idea to be a good digital steward of the future when using technologies. Can you speak a little bit more to how at scale you institutionalize compliance and ethics in new endeavors that people are innovating on? Well, (laughs) that's a broad topic. You know, compliance has many facets. Let's say, do the right things on IT security or on safety. When, you know, security by design, for instance, when you develop new products and new services or new business processes, you know, don't put the brakes in when the product is ready, but try and include the security experts right up front and make sure that, you know, potential vulnerabilities are seen at the beginning and taken care of before you know, anything gets brought to the market, as an example. And the broader topic of a compliance organization, first of all, the compliance officer has to be part of the top management team. And in our case, after having gone through a number of you know, wrongdoings of the past and sorted out big scandals, to be honest, like uh, data breach scandals, we established a resort on the board, a segment on our top management team, which would deal with data protection and legal and compliance overall. So that was one of the top executive functions. That is today more of a common practice, but like 10 years ago, it was not so much a common practice. Usually these people would report to the CFO or so. So we made it a board function. And as such, we gave resources to that person in the organization and we established rules that whatever parts of the other company would do and develop, they would run by that team in order to ensure that you know compliance is taken care of right up front. So it's also a matter of how you design the structure of your organization, how much visibility there is, and tone from the top is essential. As a CEO, you need to be, you know, constantly make your organization aware that this is an important topic, and you need to take consequential action if things you know are not going the way they should. It has many facets. It's uh, I can't summarize it in a couple of sentences. Specifically around hard decisions as a leader that might involve some of the potential scandals you discussed, whether it's a data breach or another challenge, when these things come up, how do you react to it? 
history says that many companies try to, you know, not to disclose, not to make their mistakes public. I've learned over the years that there's this law of candor, yeah? So if you are open as an organization about things which you manage well and things which went wrong and explain and also explain what your learnings are and how you take precautionary measures for not having them repeated in the future, I think the public usually appreciates that. Your stakeholders usually appreciate that. So, for instance, if you make a mistake with a customer system which you have been in charge of, um, and you discover that mistake and you inform your customer, you involve the customer early and, and be open about it, and then you fix it, that usually goes better than trying to fix it and not disclosing it and the customer finds out themselves later. And that particularly relates to IT security matters or to network security matters also. On the more proactive, so be transparent and disclose rather than try and believe that you, know, you can fix things silently and try to avoid any you know, negative repercussions from being open and honest. On the more proactive side, when, for instance, when you are in a stressed situation financially and you need to take hard decisions as to what to do and what not to do, you can cut a lot of costs, but you do have to think about your company's future. And there are usually a couple of projects, or maybe two or three key projects, which you can't afford to cut back costs. And then to tell your shareholders that you sacrifice the last few points of potential returns for a couple of years in order to maintain these important development projects because they determine your future. That's not easy, but needs to be done sometimes. And because you've got a ring fence, what determines your next five or 10 years, particularly when you are in infrastructure, you can't run a company with a two or three year view only. You have to company with a 10 plus year view because you're building infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure in this case. So I would always say, sometimes you have to make very hard choices and sometimes they go against the short-term interests, but for the long-term profitability of the company. And that's very easy to say, but it's very hard to communicate. And for a CEO, you get under a lot of pressure, sometimes for two or three years, if you don't do what you know, parts of your constituencies want you to do. The same goes for restructuring. You know, this is very unpopular in Europe. It's easier in the United States, but it's very unpopular in Europe. And to explain to your constituencies why some locations have to be shut down because they are no longer competitive or why you have to let like thousands of people go because you feel with every individual one and you need to take measures to mitigate the effects and you need to you know, put a lot of resources to make sure that nobody has no more future then and invest in requalification of these people and so on. So you need to treat everybody with respect, but eventually you have to do what has to be done. And those decisions can be extremely brutal and hard. And sometimes people procrastinate those decisions. But the one thing I've learned is when you see a problem, tackle it and don't wait. Even though it may be too difficult to do too many things at the same time, tackle those problems right up front. Don't wait. Incredible advice. And how do you deal with having so many problems, issues, things to deal with when there's just an abundance of things to do in limited time? How do you personally keep yourself focused on what's important and any advice you'd give to other leaders? Well, you usually have your radar screen of the top, let's say, 10 things you've got to do, right? I mean, that's part of the leadership role is to ensure prioritization. It's your day-to-day -day challenge is to prioritize, not to get carried away with the ad hoc things and forget about the mid to long-term important topics. So my advice is basically to make yourself aware constantly about your top priorities and not lose sight of them. 
and also carve out time to reflect, which is easy said, but we all in a multi-channel online world get so much information from so many different channels that it's very hard to sometimes carve out time to think and not only think what happens, but also think what has to happen going forward, carve out time to think. And unless you have self-discipline and you have your rhythm in your day, for instance, my day often starts at a very early time in the morning with doing some exercise. And I use that. It's almost like self-contemplation and it gives me time to think. I guess many of you will do the same thing anyway. But I think it's important not to forget to organize your day and to you know, carve time out for certain things to think through and not get carried away with the day-to-day -day business too much and constantly remind yourself of your top few priorities. You mentioned being the chair of Airbus and obviously huge organization, global impact, but very dependent on the cycles in the economy. And currently with global travel halted, I'm sure there's challenges. How do you think through advising the board, the CEO on the turbulence and what are some strategies you'd have for the organization? I think in the case of Airbus, it is the CEO who speaks for the company and not the chairman. That's our general policy. But I can say that the industry and Airbus as such is challenged with a very abrupt effect of COVID. You know, a year ago, we were struggling to get to the level of production rates or to the production rates we needed in order to fulfill our customers' expectation for supplying products fast enough and our order book was full and so on. And then within a matter of weeks, that situation changed. And I'm deeply impressed by the level of uh, precision and methodology and consequential action of reacting to that crisis, securing liquidity, ensuring that you know, our capacity gets adapted to the current normality. And what we've introduced is much more flexibility and scenario-driven planning to be ready and capable to adapt to uh, situational changes. We also, I must say, have enjoyed great support from our governments regarding follow schemes. We could save a lot of you know, talented and great people in the company in conjunction with these furlough schemes. We're also you know, trying to keep at full speed with regards to innovation development. We want to be a pioneer in decarbonized air transportation. And so you know, that these programs are being you know, pursued and so on. So I must say that from a board perspective, I couldn't be more happy with how management responds to the crisis and how consequential this team acts and how dedicated they are. And we have fantastic people at Airbus. I've been traveling quite a bit and seen locations more recently, even last week in, in France. And I was deeply impressed by the level of engagement and commitment these people show. So I'm very proud to be part of that company. It's incredible. And how different is it being the leader on, let's say, the Airbus board, and then contrast that with your experience with Spotify board? What was difference in the culture and discussion I mean, I let Daniel explain for Spotify, but it's, of course, totally different dynamic, totally different business model. You know, Airbus is a large company and requires a, you know, more formalized structural governance model than at the time some years ago. I mean, Spotify today is a listed company and I'm sure they evolved, you know, their systems further. But I was deeply impressed by the level of innovation and the entrepreneurship and the cool products, which I loved. And, you know, at DT, you may recall this, Dan, uh, back in 2010, we, or 2011, I can't call it year now, but we introduced Spotify as a partner of Deutsche Telekom, and we increased 
marketing spendings and attention around the packaging with Spotify, zero-rated Spotify data stream, so customers could afford using Spotify on their wireless device. And we had a great proposition. And Spotify at the time advertised on their website, Spotify loves telecom. That was one of my proudest moments, really, because I had this old-fashioned DT brand transformed into the new world, and we had brand ambassadors like Spotify, or you know, Phil Leading from Evernote, or the guys from Box or others. And we tried to cooperate with a lot of West Coast companies at the time in order to get our own company more innovative and to create value-add services for our users. And Spotify was one of the first, so I was very pleased. Yeah, it's incredible to see their success. And to your point, the collaboration between different brands is fascinating. One other thing that I find you have a unique perspective on is embracing different types of leadership. So you mentioned Daniel from Spotify and some other West Coast leaders. You've worked and led at DT, Airbus. But then even within DT, you had Jean Leger, who's obviously an interesting character and personality. Can you tell me about how you balance those personalities? And is there one secret sauce to success as a leader? Or do you feel like you can have many different recipes? Oh, I think there are many different recipes. And it really is situational. It depends on the industry. It depends on the situation the company is. And there are leaders for different phases of organizations. That's Tia Tim, my successor at Deutsche Telekom, for instance. He's a much better CEO for the phase which Deutsche Telekom is in now. And he's a fantastic successor. When I was in charge of leading the group, you know, the mission was basically to make the company competitive again and give that company an innovation appeal to the market, to small companies and startups as much as to consumers in many different markets and also to hopefully then eventually get the U.S. business back on track, which was kind of suffering for a whole lot of reasons and for several years before. I think John was a blessing for the company, quite frankly, because when we found John, he was the most unusual person. But initially, we had a meeting at San Francisco airport. He came a bit late. But he looked like a, a very smart and very conservative business person you know, with a dark suit and he had short hair, etc. The one only thing which I noticed at John, which was slightly different, was he had a purple or magenta, which was Dutch Telecom's color. You know, he had a magenta shoelaces in his you know, very elegant shoes. And I found that was a sign of, let's say, creativity. And we discussed the situation of the company and he got it immediately. Right? He saw the opportunity, he was very well prepared for that discussion. He saw the opportunity. Then I brought him over to Berlin in order not to expose him to the head office of Deutsche Telekom, which was in Bonn. I brought him into Berlin first so he could see, we also had a big representative office in Berlin, but he could see you know, the innovation part of the company more so than the traditional part. And only thereafter, when I tried to enchant him, you know, to charm him into joining our group, I brought him into Bonn. And of course, you know, he would not immediately be an appealing guy to all the more conservative characters at the company at the time. But we won him, and the result is well known. And I consider it, you know, it was a blessing that John decided to join Deutsche Telekom and run T-Mobile in the United States for years so successfully. And together then we found in 2012, Mike Siebert, who's also a fantastic leader and a great marketing expert, and he's now a great CEO. Well, super interesting. And one of the things I have to say is your breadth of identifying such diverse talent and organizations and bringing partnerships together to create stronger outcomes. And I just want to thank you again for all your mentorship and leadership you've provided me. And you're such an inspiration on how to bridge the gap between 
large incumbent companies that are embracing innovation and small upstarts. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for your kind words, Dan. And, you know, the inspiration comes from you to me as much as the other way around. So thank you very much for all the good communication we had and interactions we had. So I hope to see you soon. Excellent. Thank you. Likewise. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. We should all be building software that doesn't require training, that doesn't require change management because it's either so dead simple, so delightful, or so obviously necessary that it's a better way to do things that we just want to adopt it right away. So that's the kind of holy grail I think we all are striving to get to. CEO and visionary behind cloud software company Box, Aaron Levy. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.